C3 Memphis is coming up live in five, four, three, two, one. Would you be free from your burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you owe evil a victory win? There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Oh, would you be free from your passion and pride? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Come to a Calvary's tide. There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Would you be free of your burden of sin? There's power in the blood, power in the blood. Would you roar evil? Victory win. There's wonderful power in the blood. There is power, power, wonder working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. In the precious blood of the Lamb. In the precious blood of the Lamb. C3 family. Larry's asked me to do the call to worship this morning, and he's asked me to choose a psalm that challenges us to remember why we gather together. So I've chosen the first eight verses of Psalm 71. In you, Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. I have become a sign to many. You are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise, declaring your splendor all day long. Let's pray. Lord, we are filled with your praise. We declare your splendor all day long because you are worthy of all of our praise. Uh, we pray that it would be true that we would become a sign to many, that you are our refuge, even in uncertain times. You have been with us from our birth. You are with us now and you are with us in the future. We praise and thank you that you were with us in this uncertain time, even before we were here, before we knew that we would have a need for, for a time like this. Um, you were there. You were already here before we, we were. We thank you for um, being our provision 
and for being the great healer and protector. We thank you for all of those who are working across our nation and across the globe for healing and for strength. We pray that you would continue to give them and give us hope and strength at this time. We thank you and we praise you in your name. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Christ Community Church. We're so glad you guys have joined us this week. Uh, Francis, thanks for the call to worship. It's so good to see your face. And um, we're going to play some songs for you. We've had a gallon of coffee. So I'm jacked and ready to worship. Uh, and we encourage you guys to join along with us. Shout your 
Thanks, guys. That was beautiful. Thank you. And I'd like to say that Larry and I, too, are jacked and ready for worship. We've had, we've had a lot of so, coffee. Yes, it's so exciting. Yes. Good morning. Yes. Good morning. Welcome. Glad you could join us this morning. We have been in a uh, study the last couple of weeks trying to get a little glimpse at what God's Word says about grace. And uh, I've really enjoyed preparing it. I hope you've enjoyed studying it with us. Uh, studying grace is a little more challenging than uh, you might think initially. Um, it's a little hard to get uh, a grasp of what what grace really means. It's hard to define. It's hard to define. It, and one of the reasons is because it's not natural. Yeah, no, uh, it's not. One of the things uh, we were talking about this week in thoughts of grace is that you don't get, we don't get examples of grace in the natural world. Yeah, we Not see really. God, we can look at the natural world and we see God's power, right? God's beauty, God's complexity. We see God's faithfulness. We right. see things, but we don't but not, see. Not really grace. No, no. Like if you've got two animals, say there's a lion who's hunted a gazelle and, and everyone's hungry, right? So the lion shows no grace to the gazelle. I mean, that's just the way it is. Nor does, if, if there's been a famine and one lion kills a gazelle, does that lion never say, oh, come and we'll split this. No. I'll show no. you and your family some grace and we'll split right. the spoil. Right. Or better happen. yet, he won't ever say, you take it instead of me giving it to my family. That's right. Yeah. That, that, yeah. So right. that's right. nature is beautiful and reflective of God, but not so much the grace. No. That, yeah. that is a human thing. Yeah. So it, it makes it hard uh, to understand sometimes. It's hard to see it. Um, we use that word a lot. Um, uh, a, a dancer is graceful, yeah. we say. But we're really saying that that dancer, we're, we're talking about that dancer's coordination and skill. Or beauty. Uh, or beauty. We say that uh, the queen is a, a, a graceful person, but we're really talking about her dignity and her elegance. Mm-hmm. Uh, we say uh, grace uh, when we're referring to the prayer. We say uh, at dinner time. We use the word grace a lot in our vocabulary, but that those those examples don't really reflect what the Bible says about grace. Uh, when the Bible talks about grace. Um, it, it's really talking about the idea, the literal idea, uh, meaning of the word grace in the Bible <clears throat> is condescending favor. Now, we don't really use the word condescending yeah. in a positive light no, in the English like language. Mm-hmm. But truthfully, biblically, the word condescension is a, was originally a positive word. It meant for one with much to lean down and give kindness to one without. One that is high up, that's high and lifted up, would bend down and give attention or kindness to one that is 
lowdown, if you would. Um, it's condescending favor. A king would condescend in kindness toward a servant or a slave. A rich man would condescend down to one in poverty. So that's that's the idea of grace, condescending favor. In the Bible, uh, the word grace is always used in the context that it's undeserved. It's free. There's no strings attached. Yeah. There's no... Uh, uh, what is it? Uh, pro, um, what's the Latin deal? Pro quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. Yeah, there's no quid quo. Uh, whatever, however you said that. Uh, sorry. Quid pro quo. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Um, <clears throat> it's always costly, and there's always risk involved. It's condescending favor. It's always undeserved. It's always free, no strings attached. It's always sacrificial, costly. And there's always risk involved. It can be rejected. It can be misunderstood. Misunderstood. It can be taken advantage of. It's often <clears throat> taken advantage of. Yes. And if those qualities are not there, then it's not grace. It can be compassion. It can be kindness. It can be mercy. It can even be love. But if those attributes are not present, then it's not grace. Now, the Bible is full of examples of grace. Uh, In the Old Testament and the New Testament, you see numerous examples of what grace is. And the reason it gives these examples is because they're pictures. And grace needs to be explained in pictures. Not so much theological ideas or doctrinal declarations it, it, it's, it's communicated best in pictures. It's like family pictures that you would have on your shelves or on your coffee table. Those pictures are not there so much to give intellectual information. This is my father. This is my grandfather. This is my child. That's not what those pictures are for. They're to communicate emotional impact. They're to touch your heart. Say, so pictures communicate Healing. That's yeah. what we need to understand grace. Pictures that touch our hearts. And one of the best examples is found in 2 Samuel chapter 9. And uh, if you've got a copy of the scriptures, I wish you would turn to 2 Samuel 9. Because in that chapter, God reveals much about himself and uh, the, this idea that he is a God of grace. Uh, but to, to get that in 2 Samuel 9, I've got to read a passage first in 1 Samuel 18. And uh, let me just go on and read it to you. It's talking about Jonathan, the son of King Saul, and David. And this is uh, not too long after David had come on the scene. He killed Goliath. He's become a part of Saul's um, staff, if you will. And through that connection with Saul, David and Jonathan hook up, they become friends, and over time they become incredibly dear friends. And then this is what happens in 1 Samuel 18. It says, at some point, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved David as he loved his own soul. Wow. And Jonathan stripped himself of his robe and gave it to David. And he also gave him his armor and his sword, and his bow, and his belt. 
what Jonathan was doing there uh, was really communicating in a visible way uh, to David. David, I love you so much that I am giving you all in my life that matters. I'm giving you my future. I'm giving you my future, the rights to the throne. I'm giving you my power. I'm giving you my reputation. I'm giving you everything that matters. I give that to you. David was doing nothing for Jonathan. It was not a reciprocal. It was not that David had done. No, no, no. Jonathan, as an act of grace, sacrificially, in a costly way, uh, said, I choose to bless your life. I want to become a blessing to you, and I give you these things as an expression of grace. Um, I've, they, uh, Jonathan was actually giving David his future kingdom. And I believe if the scriptures hold true uh, as far as the sequence of events, this could have been quite possibly, I believe quite probably, the first time that David had ever experienced true grace. And he got it. David experienced grace, an act of undeserved, sacrificial, costly love, devotion, and loyalty. Now, you, if you have read the scriptures at all or grown up in church, you know that it was 20 years go by. Uh, Saul becomes a, 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 not only a bad king, but he gets worse and worse and worse. And ultimately, he ends his life in a battle where he is killed by the Philistines and most of his family is killed, including Jonathan. David becomes king. And uh, we jump all the way to 2 Samuel chapter 9. And in 2 Samuel 9, David is now the king of Israel. And one of the very first things he does after he's established as king is he asks the question, does anybody know if Jonathan has any living relatives? Most of them had died. So David didn't think there was anybody. He did not know if there was anybody that was even living but let me read this to you real quickly as well, just so you understand what's going on. And David is now king, and, he, and David says, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for the sake of Jonathan? And someone said, There is still a son of Jonathan. He is a cripple. Uh, and the king David, and king David sent and brought him from the house of Maker, son of Emil. And his name was Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul. And he came to David and he fell on his face and bowed before David. And David said, Mephibosheth. It's very important for you to realize that in this day, Mephibosheth knew, as well as everyone else in the kingdom of David, that why David had summoned Mephibosheth was to kill him. In that day, when one king's family took over the throne uh, uh, that, that had been ruled by another family, the, the new king killed everyone in the old king's family. So Mephibosheth thought that this was his last day on earth. And so he falls at uh, David's feet, and um, uh, David says, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. Well, the reason he said do not fear is because he was terrified. Mephibosheth was terrified for his life. And he said, do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. 
and I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And Mephibosheth responded, what is your servant that you should look upon a dead dog such as I? It's an incredible story. It's an incredible uh, picture of what grace is. David is doing something that would have been incredibly shocking to everyone in his court. You did not give opportunity and power and wealth and privilege to the family of the old king because it was quite often used in rebellion, which later on there's going to be some situations where the, the, the descendants of Saul do try to take the throne back over from David. And uh, you just didn't do that. But David... Uh, did that which was risky. He, when the new king took over, he inherited all of the wealth of the old king. David gives all of Saul's wealth, all of Jonathan's wealth to Mephibosheth. So it's sacrificial. It's costly. It's risky. It was, Mephibosheth was crippled. He could do nothing for David. He, could bring, he brought nothing to the table. And yet David showed Mephibosheth grace. And I just want to give you a just a little picture of what's going on here. I want you to imagine with me that that night at uh, supper, uh, David has got this huge royal dining room, this long elaborate table filled with golden uh, candelabras and serving bowls and dishes. And you've got this orchestra playing and the soldiers are all around, the, the guards are all around the walls. And David comes in and sits down. And then all of his wives come and sit down in their beautiful robes. And then all of a sudden, the children start coming. David's own children. They're all teenagers at this point, and, uh, as well as Mephibosheth. And uh, 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 Solomon comes in. He's probably carrying an armload of books, uh, distracted uh, by all of his studies. Uh, and he, he sits down. Um, uh, you've got Tamar, one of the most beautiful women in the kingdom. And that's very significant when you had beautiful daughters because daughters of kings grew up to become the wives of kings of neighboring countries. And that's how you made treaties. And so the more beautiful the daughter, the more other kings would want to make that daughter your, their wife. And so Tamar was going to ultimately be a great source of help to David in building a treaty with another nation. Um, you've got, uh, what were some of the other children? Uh, you've got Amnon coming in. He's a teenager still at this point, And he's one of the most shrewd and cunning young men around. And that he's going to become a diplomat hopefully someday and negotiate treaties with other countries. You've got Absalom, one of the most... Uh, 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 beloved, charismatic uh, people. He's going to become uh, somebody that's very popular and that can lead the people. You've got Adonijah, who is a mighty warrior. All of David's children are coming in to supper. And they come in in their robes. They come in, they bring their beauty, their intelligence, their power, their skill, their giftedness. They, they come in with lives full of potential. They come in bringing much to the table. And then you've got Mephibosheth, this little cripple teenager. He hobbles in and he sits down. Uh, I want you to see the picture that the Bible's trying to present 
of grace. Um, Each of David's children were bringing much to the table. Each of David's children were bringing much that would someday be of great importance and use to David's kingdom. Everyone brought something to the table but one. In a world that values and operates by beauty, by intelligence, by cunning and skill, by power, Mephibosheth offered nothing. Mephibosheth is at David's table for one reason and one reason only, and that is because of another person's act of grace, because he is related to Jonathan. And Jonathan's sacrifice, his sacrificial expression of grace, that's the only reason that Mephibosheth is there. I think it's very easy for me, for you, it's easy for us to forget that all of the good things that I've experienced, that I've received, have been given to me as a result of God's grace. I am the recipient and the beneficiary of God's indescribable and abounding love, His covenant power of promises and His abundant riches. The Bible says that I've been chosen Just like Mephibosheth, I've been chosen, I've been accepted, I've been forgiven, I've been redeemed, I've been given a robe of righteousness, I've been adopted into another's family, I've been indwelt by God's Spirit, and I've I've been given the promise that when you need me, I'll always be there and I'll always listen to you. I've been invited to sit at a table of abundance. And all of those gifts, all of those blessings have been given to me solely because of my relationship with the son of a king. God sees me and he relates to me as if I am his son himself. And God feels the exact same way about you. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of good works that you do, lest anybody say, I'm at the table because of what I can offer. I'm at the table because of what I can bring. I'm at the table because of what I've done or what I might do in the future for you. No one sits at God's table save the same reason that Mephibosheth was sitting at the table. And that is because of the sacrificial act of love that someone had made that Mephibosheth could benefit from. That's why he was at the table, and that's why we are at the table. In Psalm 23, I read this last week. I love this translation in Psalm 23, verse 5. David says, Lord... You faithfully care for my needs. You anoint my head with your oil. You continually fill my life with your grace. I love that. You continually fill my life with your grace. So it begs the question, will I come into the presence of God because he invited me? Notice Mephibosheth didn't come knocking on the door. Let me in, let me in. He was invited. David sought him out. David brought him into his presence. 
And the same is true for us. We don't seek after God. God seeks after us. God invites us into his presence. And that's exactly what David did for Mephishef. And that's what God does for us and will when I'm invited, when I hear God's voice inviting me into his presence. Will I come trusting that his grace will be available? It will be available. It will be abundant. And that it will be ready to be shared with me. Will I approach God with faith that that grace is available? Will I approach God every day believing that there'll be fresh grace available and abundant for me? The other thing, Charlie, that that just struck me as I studied this idea of grace through the life of David and Mephibosheth was this idea that people who experience grace become people that have a true passion to share grace with others. I find it very significant. David experienced grace through the life of Jonathan. And when David had the opportunity, the first thing he did was find a way to share grace with others. He could not experience grace without having a desire to share that grace with others. Um, you were telling me the other day, uh, you were talking about a tale of two cities. So I was trying to think, as we were brainstorming, I was trying to think of a piece of literature, and there are plenty, but that really shows this idea of mm-hmm. grace. And I don't know if you've ever read A Tale of Two Cities, Charles Dickens, mm-hmm. probably in high school, maybe. Um, but it's a perfect example of what grace looks like between human beings, yeah. like like David. So there's two guys. It's set in the time of the French Revolution, late 1700s. And it's set actually in two cities. So one's in Paris and one's in London. So in London, there's these two British guys. And they look alike. They're doppelgangers. <laughs> um, but but because it's, it's fiction, one is very successful, one is um, well-spoken, and the other one is... Well, he's sluggish, and he doesn't do anything, and he doesn't care about anybody. He drinks too much. He doesn't work hard. And, and so you've got these foils of one another. Well, turns out throughout the course of the book, they both fall in love with the same girl. And so, and they're both very tender with her, and they, they clearly love her. Well, she chooses the, the Charles, the one that's more um, successful and, and everything. And so the other one, Sydney, is disappointed, but he says to her, I will always love you, and I would do anything for you, our life that you love. He says that. Mm. And so mm. she thinks that's lovely, and there you go. Mm. Well, so she goes off and marries Charles. The French Revolution continues. Everything terrible is falling apart. Everything's falling apart in France. And Charles goes to France to try to help a former employee and is um, imprisoned for being an aristocrat, and he's going to face the guillotine. Mm. So Sydney finds out about this and goes to France and goes, finds his way into them. He knows everybody and finds his way into the jail. And in the jail cell, you get this wonderful scene of these two men who look alike facing one another. And Sidney Carton says to Charles Darnay, who's married to the woman that they both love, take off your coat. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful, isn't it? Yeah, take yeah. off your scarf. Take off your hat and exchange it with mine. And the whole time, Charles Darnay is saying, 
You don't know what you're doing. We're bu- you, you, you're going to trade your life from what? You can't escape this. He and didn't get it. He, he doesn't get no. it. And Sidney Carton says, don't ask questions. Just change clothes with me. Mm-hmm. And I love that because it's the clothing metaphors all through the New Testament. Yes. Take yes. this off, put this on. Yes. So they do. Yes. So they finally do it. And, and um, Sidney Carton finally has to like drug him to make him adhere to it. Change his clothes. Out goes Charles Darnay. His life is saved. And Sidney Carton, after changed places with him, goes to the guillotine and loses his life for one that he loved. Mm-hmm. That's not the end. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. But that's not the end of the story. At the mm-hmm. end of the story, when Charles and Lucy find out exactly what Sidney Carton had done, they understood grace. Mm-hmm. And she bore a child. And oh, it's, look, make me cry. She wore a child. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. And named him Sidney Carton, hmm. and said his name will live because of the grace mm-hmm. that he showed. Hmm. So great. We great understand wonderful. this Through when these we pictures. see it. Yeah. Yes, you have to yeah. see you have to grace see it. and or receive it, experience it. Grace is one of those experiential ideas. It cannot be explained uh, through through ideas. You have to you have to see it. It seems to me that there are two reactions <clears throat> to grace, and I'm just thinking this. So you may say you think no, but that there are two reactions to grace. One is it's it's ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Like I don't it, it doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. Who would do that? It's absurd. Mm-hmm. And the other one is being at, almost slain mm-hmm. in the magnificence mm-hmm. and the unmeritedness mm-hmm. of it. Thank you. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, he says, freely you have received God's grace, so freely share it with others. People that have received God's grace, like David, like Charles, people that have freely received God's grace, there is a compulsion, a passion a, a, a deep desire to share that grace with others. That's why you know I, I've studied and read and taught uh, that story in Matthew 18 about the unforgiving servant uh, numerous, numerous, hundreds of times, truthfully. And I always read that story about the unforgiving servant as Jesus' way to challenge me to be more forgiving. And maybe that is what it means. But this week, as I read that story, it just struck me in light of what we've been studying about grace. Um, here's a, you know the story. There's a servant uh, of the king. Somehow he's been in some business dealings with the king and wound up he's owing the king, literally at that you know exchange rate today from then, he owes the king millions and millions of dollars. So much money that he will never in a hundred lifetimes pay it back. The king says, I want you to pay me the debt. And the guy falls on the ground and says, I, I can't, I, please give me more time. I will pay you this debt. Everybody in the room knows he'll never pay the debt back. And the king, in, an, in a moment of compassion and grace, he says, not only will I get, not, I'm not going to just give you more time. I'm going to forgive the debt. I offer you forgiveness for the debt. And then the man leaves the palace And literally, before he can get out the door well, he bumps into another servant who owes him 
a, a few weeks' salary, a few hundred dollars, maybe a couple of thousand dollars, but a debt that clearly the second servant could pay with time. The first servant says, pay me the debt. Second servant says, Give me, I need a little more time. And the first servant who's been forgiven millions says, absolutely not. Uh, I'm going to put you in prison until the debt is paid. The king hears about it and brings the other servant back in. And here's what the king says to the, to the servant that he had offered this, this forgiveness of millions of dollars. He says, the master called the servant back in and said, to the, and said you wicked servant, I forgave all your debt because you asked. Shouldn't you have shown similar grace to your fellow servant? In anger, the master handed him over to be tortured till he paid it all, all that he owed. And then Jesus says, my heavenly father will treat you the same way unless you show forgiveness and grace to others as well. I believe that story in Matthew 18 is the story of a person that was offered grace, but he never experienced it. And the reason I believe that he did not experience that grace, it was offered, it was available, it was given, but it was never embraced, it was never received. And the reason I believe that is because he did not have a desire to share it. You see that in the life of Judas. Judas traveled with the fountain of grace for three and a half years. It was offered to Judas every day for three and a half years. But every time you see Judas, he's unwilling to give grace. He was unwilling to give grace. Every time he was in relationship with someone else, he would not share it because I don't believe that Judas or this unforgiving servant ever really received it. This story in Matthew 18 of the unforgiving servant, I believe it's a hyperbole. I believe the people listening to Jesus, they understood what Jesus was trying to say. This is absurd. This is impossible. This is ridiculous. No one could be given such a gift and not have a desire to then share it. There's so many Christians, some of which I love very much, who are strong in their faith and devout in their commitment to follow the Lord Jesus. And yet they struggle severely in some cases with the assurance of their salvation. They really battle with believing, am I really loved? Am I really adopted? Am I really forgiven? Am I a child of God? How can I know for sure? I believe that one of the most powerful ways that you and I can have assurance that we are the children of God, that we have experienced the grace of God is by asking ourselves the question and evaluating our life then, do I show other people grace? Am I known as a person of grace? Would the people that I live around and that I'm closest with, would they describe me as a person of grace, not just a person of generosity, but a person of grace. They're not the same. I can be a very generous person, but are there strings attached? Are there conditions? See, grace says I give it with no strings attached, no expectations, no demands, no conditions. I give that which is costly. I don't just throw a few bucks at needs that really doesn't affect me. 
is what is my act of kindness and compassion sacrificial? Is it costly? Is it risky? Could it be used against me? Could I be taken advantage of? Could I be underappreciated by the one I'm showing kindness to? Grace is different. Am I a person of grace? Do I feel a God-given responsibility and passion to show grace to others? Because I have been given grace by God himself. I think that's a good question for each of us to ponder today. We're going to end the service today by celebrating the Lord's Supper. And since this, we've been mentioning this idea of a table, a table, the table where David invited Mephibosheth to come and eat every day uh, of his life, the rest of his life with him. Um, I believe that the Lord's Supper is really communicating to us in a very strong way that we have been invited to his table, the table of grace. And we eat and we drink that which represents the body and the blood of our Savior. And we do that to communicate. We understand that we've been invited to God's table of grace. And we accept that invitation. We come not bringing anything to the table except our hunger and our thirst. Hmm. But we come joyfully and gratefully declaring that we are here because of the grace of God. So if you have bread and juice or wine, take and eat and drink with us as we celebrate the grace that we have received because we have been invited to God's table. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today. We are happy that you could be with us. I just want to bless us today by reminding us that in Luke 14, Jesus says that my dad has prepared a table, a table full of abundance. And he said, when it's ready, I'm going to send out my servants and say, everything's ready. The food's ready. The wine has been poured. The table's been set. The servants are ready to serve. Come and enjoy this feast with me. If you've never accepted that invitation by God to become a part of God's family and someday enjoy that feast when Jesus returns, accept that gift, that free gift of abundant life, that gift of grace that God is offering to you today. Lord bless you. Are you hurting and broken within? Overwhelmed by the weight of your sin? Cause Jesus is calling. Have you come to the end of yourself? Do you thirst for a drink from the well? Jesus is calling. Come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ.
me behind your grits and mistakes Come the day there's no reason to wait Cause Jesus is calling Bring your sorrows and trade them for joy From the ashes a new life is born Cause Jesus is calling Come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, come to the altar, the Father's arms are open wide. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And so oh, what a Savior. Isn't he wonderful? Sing hallelujah. Christ is risen. We bow down before him, for he is Lord of all. Sing hallelujah. Christ is risen.
Thanks again for joining us this week. We're so excited to play songs for you every week and uh, uh, lead you guys in worship. So uh, come back next week. We'll do it again. Uh, Facebook Live at 1015. Uh, YouTube Live. Is there anything else? Did I forget anything? Guys, thank you all so much. You'll have a great week.